Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not, know, do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, and God, who searches the human heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. This passage, like I said, is one of my favorites, but it also contains one of the more problematic verses in all of Paul's letters. This verse right there in the middle, we know, Paul writes, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. All things? All things. For good, for those who love God. What on earth could this possibly mean? Well, today I'm going to do my best to spend a few minutes with you trying to unpack what it is Paul is trying to say. I'm going to lay out some different possible interpretations, and I'm going to end with what I think Paul is saying. If you disagree with me, it won't be the first time. It won't be the last, and I would love to have a conversation later in the week to hear your point of view. So let's start with the low-hanging fruit, shall we? Does this passage mean that Christians get special treatment? Does this passage mean that Christians are the only ones who can expect things to work out for good in the end? I wish make this whole thing a lot easier but the answer is no. There are two reasons, two primary reasons, I think, this line of thinking that God only works for good for those who love God, who are called by God. The first is that this goes against the very idea of grace, which is the heartbeat of our faith, the idea that God's love and blessing is a freely given gift that you cannot earn and that you do not deserve. The second reason I think this line of thinking goes to a dead end pretty quickly is this understanding that God gives special treatment to people of faith goes against the very nature of discipleship. The discipleship described by Jesus, a discipleship that involves mercy and humility and sacrifice, a discipleship, a way that calls for us to pick up our cross. We, all know, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose, does not mean, in my opinion, that Christians get preferential treatment or a life that works out in the end. That is not the way grace works, and it's not what discipleship looks like. So maybe what Paul is saying is that everything that happens, happens for a reason that every blessing is some kind of reward, and that every struggle is some kind of lesson, and that all situations are predestined, set up 
by God. This is a really tempting way to see things because it makes things fit. But it's a theology that breaks down, I think, pretty quickly when things aren't going very well. It's easy to attribute success and blessing to God's generous hand. It is more difficult to ascribe suffering to God, especially when that suffering is extreme. Everything happens for a reason is the theology of the privileged, who have never known the horrors of war, genocide, and systemic injustice. It's a theology that, in my mind, has no room for mystery or for tragedy. Steve was a pastor when his daughters, Megan and Amanda, and his wife, Nancy, were all in a car accident together. Megan, who was 16, was driving the car. Nancy, her mother, was in the front seat with her, and Amanda, the little one, was in the back seat. The accident was not Megan's fault. A van swerved into her lane, and her attempt to avoid the van the car rolled. The girls survived the accident, but Nancy's injuries were just too severe, and she died the next day. Eight days later, Steve stood in the pulpit of his congregation in Georgia on a Sunday morning and preached these words. This is what I have glimpsed, he said. I've seen not a God who caused this, that predestined this, and pulled the strings for the final outcome. Long ago, I lost my faith in a God who manipulates our every move, who swerves a white painter's van across the pant of Nancy's stupid Ford Explorer, causing it to roll over too easily. Luckily, he writes, no one has yet said to me, it was God's will. If so, there might be two tragedies. But several, he writes, several have asked me, why, Steve? As if God did this, but why? Why will serve no purpose? God's answer to that question is the same as to Job. Were you there when I created all of this? He goes on, it was chaos, a blip of disorder in an otherwise mostly ordered world. The only question now is, what's next? We know all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. Maybe what Paul is trying to say here is that while God doesn't cause everything, God can use everything for good. This point of view has strong appeal The idea that everything is redeemable, that every situation can teach us a lesson or help us grow, that sounds really good and important. And there's some truth there. But whenever I get close to embracing that theology, I think of Steve and all the other people I have talked to over 17 years of ministry, good people, faithful people, kind people, who have suffered something so tragic so severe, so life-altering, so senseless, that even the hint that their tragedy serves some greater divine purpose or taught them some life lesson is absolutely offensive because it 
covers up the truth of their pain with a ridiculous silver lining. Stephen Dunn speaks to the dangers of this covering up in his poem on the death of a colleague. It's a poem. It reads, She taught theater, so we gather in the theater. We praised her voice, her knowledge, how good she was with Godot and just four months later with Gigi. She was 50, the problem in the liver. Each of us recalled an incident in which she'd been kind or witty. I told about being unable to speak from my diaphragm and how she made me lie down, placed her hand where the failure was, and showed me how to breathe. But afterwards, I could only do it when I lay down, and that became a joke between us, and we, I told it as my offering to the audience. I was on stage, and I heard myself wishing to be impressive. Someone else spoke of her cats, and no one spoke of her face or of the last few parties. The fact was I had avoided her for months. It was a student's turn to speak, a sophomore, one of her actors. She was a drunk, he said. Often came to class reeking. Sometimes he couldn't look at her, the blotches, the awful puffiness. And yet she was a great teacher. He loved her. But the thought someone should say what everyone knew because she didn't die by accident... Everyone was crying, everyone was crying, and it was almost over now. The remaining speaker, a historian, said he'd cut his speech short. And the chairman stood up as if by habit, said something about loss, and thanked us for coming. None of us moved, except for some students, to the student who'd spoken. And then others moved to him, across dividers, down aisles, to his side of the stage. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. If this doesn't mean that Christians get special treatment, if this doesn't mean that everything happens for a reason, if this doesn't mean that God can use everything for some good, then what's left? I think the answer lies in one little Greek word, the word that is translated in the passage before us, in the sentence before us, as works together. The Greek word here is the word synergy. What if the good that God is able to work out for all of us is a synergy of all that happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Instead of giving false promises or simple justifications or explanations, what if God is working to bring about a synergy, an integration of all the disparate parts of ourselves. God doesn't want us to explain away our struggles or even our blessings or for us to necessarily look for some deep meaning in them. God simply wants us to include all of it into our story. Theologian Rob Bell speaks to the synergy in his book, What is the Bible? If you're at a dinner party and you want to retell a story, he points out, you don't take out the nasty parts or the unfortunate events. You include them. But in retelling things, they often appear in a new light. They are what they are, 
And yet when they're retold, they take on new meaning and weight and perspective. There's power in including them in your story. For example, remember that time you went camping and it rained the whole time and you were soaking wet and then the car got a flat tire and the raccoons got your food. Insert your story here. Now, when you're at a party years later and you tell that story, you tell it with a smile on your face, with great flourish, until everyone around the table is laughing. It's a great story about the worst camping trip ever. Were you laughing when your tent ripped and water poured in? Were you smiling when you realized you had no dry clothes? Were you enjoying that walk to the convenience store in the middle of the night during a downpour? Of course not. It was miserable. And yet, when you retell the story, you include all those details. Because in your retelling, they somehow get transformed. One summer, Father Gregory Boyle, who runs a ministry in Los Angeles for former gang members, one summer day, he was giving an all-day training to about 600 social workers. As he often does, he brought two men from his ministry with him. One was a guy named Jose. Jose was in his late 20s. Prior to working on the substance abuse ministry team, Jose had been a heroin addict and a gang member. At one point in the training, Jose got up in front of those 600 people and said very offhandedly, you know, I guess you could say my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I guess when I was six, when she said, looked at me and said, why don't you just go kill yourself? You are such a burden to me. The whole audience gasped like you just did right now. And then he laughed and said, oh, it sounds a whole lot worse in Spanish. (laughs) Then he said, you know, I guess I was nine when my mom drove me down to the deepest part of Baja, California, and she walked me up to an orphanage and said, I found this kid. It was 90 days later when my grandmother found me there and brought me home. He went on, my mom and I, we fought every single day, so much so I had to wear three t-shirts to school. And then Jose started to cry, others started to cry, and through his tears he said this, I wore three t-shirts well into my adult years because I was ashamed of all my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see them. But now my wounds are my friends. I welcome my wounds. I run fingers over my wounds. Then he looked at the crowd and he said, how can I help the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? The power of this story of Jose is not that God used these horrible events to shape Jose into a better version of himself. His childhood was absolutely tragic. There was no meaning or purpose behind it. It was not what God intended. This is not a person who's seeking to find meaning in these horrible things. What makes the story so compelling, to me anyway, is that Jose has the courage to speak of his wounds without explanation or apology. They are what they are, and they are his. We know all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. I think it's my hope and prayer, I know it's my hope and prayer, 
that there will come a time, maybe for you individually, for us corporately, and hopefully for the world, there will come a time when everyone can tell their whole story without shame or the need to justify a single thing. In fact, I often wonder if this is what heaven is like. The one place where we can all tell our story in full without apology or hesitation. Isn't that, after all, the ultimate goal of God's grace? The inclusion of every story, the synergy of every story into God's story? Theologian and writer Frederick Buechner was walking in Central Park when a middle-aged black woman came toward him. Just as she passed him, she spoke three simple words. Jesus loves you. Buechner later recalls, that is what she said. Jesus loves you, just like that. She said it in an everyday voice, as if she had been saying, good morning. And I was so caught off guard that it wasn't until she was lost in the crowd that I realized what she had said and wondered if I could possibly ever find her again and thank her, if I could ever catch up with her and say, yes, yes, if I believe anything worth believing in this whole world, I believe that. He loves me, he loves you, he loves this whole doomed, damned pack of us. It's my belief that the good that God is working out in us and for us is not the promise that all will be well, or that we will avoid suffering, or that God can use everything for good. I believe the good news is that God is doing everything in God's power to help us see our stories, our narratives, our lives as part of God's love story, a story defined by mercy, justice, peace, and grace. This is the work God will stop at nothing to complete. Because in the end, this synergy, this integration, is what love simply demands. This is why. This is why we know and I think can believe, despite all we see and experience in ourselves and others, this is why we know and we can believe that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. Amen.